Our Lord and our God, we thank you for the privilege it is to gather together as your people. Lord, we thank you for the privilege it is to give back to you something of what is already yours in our offering this evening. Lord, we ask that all that's been given would be used to further your kingdom both here and afar. Lord, would those responsible for what is done with it be given wisdom and full wisdom into the best uses of our resources. And Lord, as we open up your word tonight, would you speak to each and every one of us, we pray. Amen. Good evening, it's great to see so many of us out on such a warm evening. Um, you know, this morning we started a new series with our, with our young people. We started an apologetic series and we asked the question, uh, how do we know God exists? And we looked at the proof of Jesus and then we went in to explore a little of creation, looked at some incredible scenes from creation. And days like today, does it not just hit you how incredible our world is? And it also strikes me that when I see a beautiful day like this, I say, let my faith in Christ be as strong as those that believe nothing created this world. Because what an incredible level of faith it takes to look at the world that we live in and say there is no creator. We're going to open the Revelation chapter 2. We're going to read the first of the seven, uh, the seven letters to the seven churches. So we're going to begin reading at verse 1 to verse 7 to the church in Ephesus. Please, by the way, just relax, chill. If you need to take jumpers off and slouch a little bit because it's that hot, that's okay, do it. From verse 1 we read, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toils, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. You have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do your works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet you have this. You hate the, wor uh, the works of the Nicolaitans, which I hate also. He who has an ear, let him hear. When the Spirit says to these churches... To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. I want to spend a little moment introducing these letters. Oh, water in this temperature is lovely. Have you ever moved church? Maybe you're in that process just now, looking for a new church, a new congregation to gather. It's a pretty daunting experience. Because in the space of a worship service and a flick through the website and a little look at the news sheet, you're trying to work out something of the condition of the church. You're trying to work out what does the church believe? Who are they? What do they think? How are their people? What's their style of worship? How do they preach? How do they welcome people? What have they got on going through the week? There are lots and lots of things when we go to a church for the first time that we are trying to evaluate and examine. And it's really hard. It's really hard to walk into a church service and try and understand the entirety of a church and who they are. But we know that the most tremendous of church buildings can contain the most dead of congregations. And likewise, the most modest of buildings can contain the most incredibly vibrant com uh, congregations that walk with the Lord. 
It is hard for us. It is hard for us to examine and see what is going on. And that is because only the head of the church himself, only Jesus Christ can accurately inspect each church, can tell us of its true condition. Why? Because he sees the internals. He doesn't just look and see what is on the outside. And I quite like this uh, picture, but in these seven letters, these seven churches in Asia Minor, we're kind of seeing a spiritual x-ray of, of the spiritual condition of each church as we go into this. We're not just looking at the, the outward things. We're not just looking at what they do well, what they maybe don't from what we see through our eyes. But Jesus is cutting right through that right into the middle and I found that doing that and as we seek to have that x-ray and try and reflect that onto ourselves it can be pretty painful and it can be pretty difficult for us to be completely honest with God of the condition of our hearts and where we find ourselves right now takes an awful lot of vulnerability from us and there's a fairly similar pattern that runs through these letters they start with praise they start with keep going. They start with an encouragement, a compliment, something that the church is doing well, followed by an accusation and a warning, with two exceptions, Smyrna and Philadelphia. Maybe they were phenomenal churches, but there was no real uh, accusation for them. It was more this prophetic warning of, of what is to come, the things and the persecution that they are going to face. You'll notice in verse 7, the plural of the word church, because this is God's message to specific congregations, but it is also a message to all churches. God is speaking to each of us as individuals through this message, as he does in incredible ways through his scripture. And that's where, as Ali read, verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Churches aren't entities, but they are bodies built up of individuals. And it's the individuals of a church that determine the spiritual health of a church. So when we read these letters, as we seek to apply themselves to, as we seek to apply this to ourselves, it can be really hard. We keep in mind that John, as he is writing these things, he is a pastor at heart. He is a shepherd. He is a man that wants to build up. He's a man that wants to encourage the, all of these churches that are going through difficult times of persecution. Churches just like us are refined by the fires of this world. The struggles and the things that we go through. A purified church, a church that is strong and is close to the Lord, doesn't need to fear the enemy, doesn't need to fear men. Because it is Christ that stands at the centre. So I want to jump into Ephesus. The church that is known as the careless church. Each of the seven messages begin with a description of Jesus taken from the vision in Revelation 1. The words that are given. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Who walks among the seven golden lampposts. The Ephesian church had probably the greatest leadership of any churches ever. They had Paul, they had Timothy, they had the apostle John himself. But Jesus is reminding them that the one who holds the stars, the one who is above all, is the one who is in control of the ministry of this church. That it is God that places the stars and that it is God who is in control. 
I imagine it would be fairly easy to become complacent if we were in a congregation where our leaders were men like Paul and Timothy and John. I couldn't imagine what it would be like to sit under sermons read by these guys, to listen to these guys open the word and discuss it. It would be incredible. But the Lord comes to them. I want to look at the first thing, the praise that he gives them. Uh, verses 2 to 3 and verses 6. I know your works, your toils, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Verse 6. Yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I hate also. I want to think about praise for a moment. What is the best bit of praise or the best compliment you have ever received? I'll share with you mine. Mine, I found out through my father-in-law's wedding speech. It was quite wonderful. Um, but when Victoria, when we first started going out, she was describing me to her dad. And her dad thought the words she used were so brilliant to describe me that he had decided to include them in his speech. So, of course, Victoria used lots of great things because she was so deeply in love and, and all that sort of stuff. But the one word that she used above all to describe me was the word cute. <laughs> and her dad met me for the first time, looked me up and down and went, no, it's not happening. So, but at the time, it was, it was wonderful. Fantastic compliment. It's not quite praise, but here the Lord opens up and he starts with words of praise. What was the praise for the church in Ephesus? This was a serving church. This was a church that were busy doing the works of the Lord. I have no doubt that their weekly schedule would have been packed of great things with them seeking to serve their community. This was an active church. It was a church that was seeking to serve its members and those round about them. It was a church that sacrificed. The word toil means to work to the point of exhaustion. The Ephesian Christians paid a price for serving the Lord. They worked hard at it. They didn't just give a little, but they gave a lot. I imagine this steadfast and hardy group of people that they worked hard continuously and continued to give everything that they had. And they were patient. They endured under trial. They kept going when the going was tough. It was a church full of switched on people who were passionate about the gospel, who were engaged and involved in the church, and they were living that out within their congregation. How awesome that is. And you know, as churches, we love success. We love when things are good. We love, in general, when the numbers of things that people turn up to goes up the way because it's a sign of things are going okay. But we like to be involved in the thriving things. We like to be involved in the things that go well. We want to be where we can see God moving. And that's great. It's great to be in those places. But we must also be prepared for when we must endure the trials. May we be known as a church that works, that toils and that patiently endures for the gospel. Something we're going to have to do more and more of as we move further and further into the society that goes further and further away from God. May we not be people that entertain evil. May we be people that stand steadfast when our society goes further the wrong way. The Ephesian church was also made up of discerning believers. They carefully examined all of those around about them. 
They examined the visiting ministers to see if they were genuine. Paul had warned the Ephesian elders that false teachers would come from inside and outside. We read in Acts 20. And John instructed them in 1 John 4 to test the spirits. And they did. This is great. These are people that are switched on, that understand their Bibles, that know how to discern what truth is and know how to find and see. Actually, do you know what? That is not right. If we want to be those people, if we want to know what is right and what is not right, we must know what is right to be able to do that. There's no shortcut to discernment. There's no little voice in our head that says, yes, this is okay, no, that's not okay. But it is the word of God that tells us what is truth and what is not truth. And the spirit outworking that in us is what helps us. For example, if somebody tells you I am saved through the works of my own heart, if I'm saved through what I do, that's when our alarm bells start ringing. We start going, okay, that is wrong. But we don't refute that with our opinion. We go back to them with scripture. We go back to them with the authority. Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is God and it is God alone. It is through the work of Christ that we are justified. By faith, through him, into grace we rejoice. It's all about Jesus. Do you know, let the false teachers, let the false messengers, let them contend with the word. Give them the word and let them work away at that. Let them try and wrestle their heresy with what is written in the authority. And of course, Satan has his false men. And the church must always be alert to this. They've also not grown weary. I love that. That despite the trials, the struggles, the the persecution that they were facing, they did not grow weary. Why is that? Because they go to him. All who labour and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. These were people that found a rest in Christ Jesus. These were people that knew I cannot do all things by myself, but I need to go to Jesus. Why did they not grow weary? Because the rest was in God. Because they knew to go to Christ. The Ephesian church separated themselves, not only from what was false in doctrine, but what was false in, uh, in deeds. And the Nicolaitan I mentioned here, and there's loads of theories as to who they are. We don't really know who they are. Maybe they were followers of Arrhenius or Nicholas, it's mentioned in Acts 6. But uh, there's references to the Gnostics, there's lots of things. All we know is that they're heretics and Jesus hated them. They're mentioned again in a letter in uh, Pergamos. So I'm sure David will come and correct it and give us the right standing in a few weeks' time when we hit that letter. But Jesus commands this hatred of false teaching. It's all pretty good at this point. We read of a fantastic church that were made up of great people. And I love the fact that the first thing God does in this is he encourages them. His first port of call is to say, do you know what? I'm going to build these people up. And I'm going to tell them the things that they are doing well, a reflection for us. How quickly are we to be negative? How quickly do we jump in to find the flaws in people and in things? Not just in church, but in people. But actually, let us be a people that first find what is good. Let us be a people that build up. Doesn't mean we ignore the issues, because Jesus blatantly doesn't ignore the issues that come in this passage. Through John. These were a suffering people. 
These were a persecuted people who bore their burdens and they toiled and they worked without fainting. And they did all of it for the sake of Christ Jesus. They continued to witness. They continued to witness no matter what was thrown at them. They stood firm and they endured because they knew truth. Because they knew what was right. The praise that they are given here centers around a desire to be different. The desire not to accept the things of the world as truth, but to say, actually, I'm going to hold myself accountable to the standards of God. My first reflective question for us, what would God's words of praise be to you? Are we a people that are hungry to be different? Are we a people that are hungry to stand for truth? Is our desire to see Christ glorified and to work tirelessly for the kingdom of God. I wonder if Jesus wrote a letter to this church. If John wrote a letter with the words of Jesus to this church. What would his encouragement be? I imagine they would include our desire to welcome. Our desire to love those who enter our doors. The fact that we hold the, uh, the word of God in high regard. The fact that we're seeking to do things in this world for him. And I wonder if Jesus wrote to us. If there was a letter to each of us examining the depths of your heart. What would the encouragement be? May it be the love that you show to strangers. It may be your hospitality. It may be your faithful service. It may be your commitment to the word. Your commitment to prayer. I don't know. Do you know, no matter how much we look at the Ephesians, and if we were with them and we looked at them, I think we would conclude that they were a pretty good church. I think that we could conclude that they were pretty much perfect. But the one, the one who was among the lampposts, saw into their hearts, and he saw something totally different altogether. The accusation that faced them in verse 4, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first here's the accusation pretty plain and simple that jesus brings before them it's not clear if he's talking of the love of their love of god or their love for each other i imagine it's probably both because one normally follows from the other it is hard for us to love each other if we do not first love god and you know we've spoken about this many times that relationship takes effort whether it be our marriages, whether it be our friendships, whether it be as a church family with those we maybe don't get on with, whether it be our relationship with God, whatever it may be, relationships take work and they take effort. Our relationship with Jesus is just like that. It's so easy for us to grow lukewarm. It's so easy for us to accept the grace that God throws upon us and just sit back and take it all without any real thought and there is a heart problem going on in this church they were showing these great acts they were showing these great works these great toils this patience that was clearly brilliant but somehow it wasn't motivated by their love for christ what we do for god is so important but why we do it is more important what is the first love? What is the love like at first? Think about it. When you first fell in love, 
if you're married with your spouse. But even greater than that, your relationship with Jesus. When you first began to follow him, that excitement, that uninhibited desire to do anything for him, this open display of love for God, this incredible honeymoon-like phase where we're just all out for Jesus and it's fantastic. But you know, take marriage as an example. Marriage matures, love deepens, it grows richer. So why shouldn't the excitement? We shouldn't lose the wonders of those first days together. When a husband and wife begin to take each other for granted and life becomes a routine, then marriage is in danger. So what happens when we begin to take God for granted? What happens when we begin to push God away a little bit? Our relationship with God is struggling. If we lose the on wonder of God, if we begin to take him for granted, if we begin to make church a routine, this Christ-centered motivation that we have and this drive that we have begins to disappear. And you know, I find this really, really scary. That this is a church that can serve, that can suffer, that can sacrifice for his name's sake, as we're told, yet not really love Jesus as they should. That cuts me to the middle. This idea that we can be doing these amazing things, but actually I'm not right with God. I think they were so busy. They were so busy protecting themselves from false teaching. They were so busy protecting themselves from the word that actually they were beginning to neglect their adoration of God. Do you know, work and toil is no substitute for love. And truth isn't a substitute for passion. We must have both. We must have it all. We must be a people that love truth. But we must also be a people that are passionate for the truth. And I think this is one of the biggest challenges in this passage. Are we so busy trying to make sure we don't follow the ways of this world? Are we so busy trying to keep ourselves away from what is wrong that we're not fixed upon Jesus? Just because we're fighting against the world doesn't mean that we're closer to Jesus. It's so easy for us to assume that these things go hand in hand, but they don't. Our second question. If the Lord was to write a letter of accusation to this church about our shortfalls, what would they be? It's a bit more of an uncomfortable question than the first one, isn't it? I think the battle of church, of any church, is complacency. It can be easy in a church of this size to hide and to think, do you know what, somebody else will do it. Rather than how can I help build up the body of Christ in Hamilton. I think we are a church that does work. I think we are a church that has amazing people that are toiling, that are working hard, that are pressing on for the Lord. But we, like the Ephesians, cannot lose sight of our first love. How is the corporate prayer life of our church? How is the passion of this church? How focused is this church on the fundamental truth of the gospel? Huge question. But the church is made up of individuals, so these questions are all questions to us and for our hearts do you know the great revivals of our land started with people getting together and praying and the preaching of the gospel 
you know, I find it amazing if you look at the Metropolitan Tabernacle where Spurgeon was the preacher, you would ask him what was such a key to your powerful preaching and you would go to another room in the church and there could be hundreds praying during services. There could be hundreds praying during evangelistic meetings. And you know, during the time he was at that church, 12,000 people came to the Lord and there's 20 volumes of elders' reports that visited these people individually for baptism and membership. How incredible. Real revival, people coming to faith because they were focused on what they should be doing. Let's go more personal than our question to the church. What is God's accusation against you? Are you complacent? Is there unrepentant sin in your heart? Is there a grievance that you hold against somebody else? Nobody else may be able to see it. Nobody else may know that it is there. Everybody may think things are wonderful. This is a person that is doing fantastic. But our God and that spiritual x-ray cuts straight through all of that. Because we serve a God who sees all, who knows all, and is above all. And we find the warning to them in verses 5 to 7. And it reads... Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. If you have lost that first love of Christ, if you have lost this sense of awe and wonder and this idea that Christ is the utter center of everything that we do, don't fear because we can do something about it. Firstly, we must remember. We must keep on remembering. We must desire to regain this close communion with God. We must remember the acts of our God. We must remember the things that Christ has done for each and every one of us. And when we recognize those things, we repent. We come before our God. We fall before the cross and we recognize our shortfallings. We confess it all to God. And that's the thing with the x-ray. You see everything. We can't repent a little bit. We can't repent of the things that we want to give to God. But we give it all to God and then we must repeat those first works this suggests this idea this restoration that's been broken by sin by neglect what does that mean it means for us as Christians it means prayer it means immersing ourselves in scripture it means meditating on scripture it means obedient service of God and worship all in response to the incredible things that he has done for us. Do you know what I do? I think it's utterly terrifying that in spite of all the privilege of this church and its leadership, of everything that it was doing, it was in danger of losing its light. I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Who you are is more important than what you do. That is what this is telling us. Do what you want, look great in front of man, but it means nothing. Because Christ must be first. 
If the church loses its love for Christ, it will soon lose its light. And it doesn't matter how doctrinally sound that church is. It doesn't matter the statement of faith that that church puts out. It doesn't matter how much we say we hold a high regard for the word. If Jesus is not at the centre, none of it matters. Verse 7. Sinful man was banned from the tree. But in Christ we have eternal and abundant life. And we enjoy that blessing now on earth. But we will see so much greater volumes of that. In eternity we will see true communion with God. We will see it as it should be. The church in Ephesus was a careless church. Made up of believers who were neglecting their love for Christ. Are you guilty of the same? And our third question. What would the warning be to this church? Do not lose sight of your first love. Do not become complacent. Do not lose sight of the God that we serve. Do not lose sight of what must come first. And if we do, get back to that point. If we do, go running back to the cross. It's the beauty of the grace of God. That it is always there. That the cross is always open. That it is always ready for us to return to. And if you were in a point of despair with God, I urge you to come before him. Come before him in complete honesty. Open his word for encouragement. If we just go back into Revelation chapter 1 verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last. Why does any of this matter? It matters because it is Jesus who has made us worthy. Because it is God that goes before us, that goes behind us, that goes above us and below us and everywhere else in between. Because our God is awesome. We must be a people that desires to put the love of Christ first, above absolutely all else. What would the warnings to our church be? Where are the converts? Where are the people that are coming into full relationship with Jesus in this place? Where is the evidence that we are a spirit-filled, prayer-fueled, Christ-centered church? I think that would be one of those questions. We must be a church that is gospel-centered. We must be a church that that puts the salvation of the lost at an absolute priority. It's the salvation of the lost. Those that are destined for an eternity without God a concern to you. What we have before us is a great church of great people. And I don't think by any means it's all doom and gloom for them. I think that the Lord is pulling them back to himself. That through the words of John, we are seeing they're coming back. They're focusing on him. Do you know, they are working hard for him. They are doing the right things. But they lost sight of what came first. Let us not be those people. Let us not be those people that ever, that ever 
lose sight of Jesus. And if we do, let's repent. Let's come before him. My last question. What would a letter from Jesus look like to you? What would be the words of encouragement to you? What would be the rebuking to you? What would be the warning that he gives to you? I just want to leave a moment of silence and then we'll pray. Our God, how gracious you are to us. You are a God that gives us so much that we do not deserve. You are a God that gives us opportunity after opportunity. Unlimited opportunities to come back to your throne of grace. God, would we be a people that are marked by our repentance? Would we be a people that are marked for our passion for Jesus? Would we be a people that put you at the absolute centre of everything that we do? And then everything else from there will take care of itself. We thank you that we are able to gather together. We thank you that we are able to come and to worship your holy name. God, would you draw us closer to each other as a fellowship? Lord, would we strive harder to be closer to you, to be a people that are united for Christ? You are such a good God that is worthy of all our praise. Amen.